Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm Riley Snyder, filling in for Nevada Independent Editor John Ralston, who is in Las Vegas. Welcome to our weekly podcast. This week, reporters Megan Messerly and Michelle Rendells and I talk about the fourth week of the legislature, what we've been covering this past week. In pursuit of our mission to provide reader-supported, nonpartisan news and information, the Nevada Independent sometimes accepts sponsorships of events and the podcast. Sponsors have no input into topics or content. This episode of Indie Matters is sponsored by the Nevada Mining Association. Uh, guys, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for letting us be in your podcast. Yeah, thanks for letting, even though we're in our living room of our, our house. It'd be really hard to make you not be on <laughs> to the podcast. kick one of us out. <laughs> yeah. I don't You're think banished to your room. Yeah. Um, so we had a, another busy week at the, the old legislature this week. Um, so let's just dive right in. Um, Megan, on Monday, you had what has become probably the most, or no, is the most commented upon bill in the entire legislature. For a while, it was the gun background check bill, but now... It's this bill, which has to deal with physician-assisted suicide, but there's a lot of ways to say that, and I'm probably mm-hmm. going to piss someone off by calling it that. But tell us how that hearing went on Monday and sort of what the, the gist of the argument was. Right. So this bill um, was introduced by Democratic State Senator David Parks. This is not the first time he's introduced it. Um, he introduced it last session as well. But basically, like you mentioned, there are a lot of different names. So one of them is Physician Aid in Dying. Um, supporters of the bill call it a Death with Dignity bill. Um, opponents tend to call it, you know, an assisted suicide or use the term suicide when referring to the bill. But basically what the legislation would do is allow patients to take um, drugs to end their lives if they have a terminal illness. And it would allow their doctors to prescribe those drugs to them to do so. So the idea that proponents say is that, you know, if you have some sort of cancer, it's, you know, going to sort of wreak havoc on your body. Um, You know, a lot of folks just want to be able to sort of end their life on their terms, be able to to go out a little bit more, you know, peacefully and surrounded by friends and family versus, you know, sometimes there's issues with breathing or pain and and all those things that that folks don't want to go through. So the idea behind the bill is that this would allow folks to to ask their doctor and the, the bill sort of lays out the procedure. There's like, you have to ask for it in so many certain forms and then there has to be two physicians that approve it. So it's not just, you know, you ask for it and they give you the drugs right away. There's a a laid out process, um, but it would essentially allow someone who is diagnosed with a terminal illness, who's expected to die within six months to request these drugs. And, And the idea is that you, you know, then get the drugs and go home and then sort of make the decision, you know, with your friends and family when the right time is. Um, for you to take them. So obviously there was a lot of emotional testimony in support of this bill from folks at the hearing, um, you know, folks who've seen, you know, loved ones sort of suffer um, with a terminal illness sort of in their final days, you know, folks themselves who've been, you know, fighting various forms of cancer and would like this to be an option. Obviously there was a lot of emotional testimony on the other side too, um, from folks saying, you know, we don't think this is right based on, you know, religious or moral grounds. We don't, they they view it as suicide. They don't think it's right for someone to take their life. Um, They have concerns about sort of the, the healthcare system and what this means. There were concerns that insurance companies you know, might deny treatment and sort of urge people to to take this route as sort of a, a, you know, cost-saving measure, which is obviously really horrific to think about. Um, So those were some of the concerns that, you know, opponents brought up during the hearing. And I think the big question will be, 
you know, what happens with this bill this time around. It's not something that necessarily splits on party lines. Last session when this bill came up, um, it passed 11 to 10 in the Senate, but, you know, Republican Senator Pete Guaycachia actually voted with some Democrats in support of the bill. There were some Democrats that voted against the bill with Republicans, so it's not like a straight, you know, clear-cut um, party line issue. Um, and we're also not sure how Governor Sislak feels about the concept. Um, his spokeswoman just told me, you know, he's sort of reviewing all proposals and, you know, we'll make a decision when they come to his desk. That's wild because we've gotten the same response on every other bill that yeah. the governor <laughs> is reviewing. Looks forward yes. to signing it. Um, but if, if memory serves right, on Monday you spoke with a man whose wife took advantage of a similar law that was passed in Oregon. What was um, his story and why was he uh, here in Nevada to, to testify in favor of this? Yeah, so his name is Dan Diaz. Um, he's the husband of Brittany Maynard, and she was sort of the the woman uh, with brain cancer. Her story was really well publicized, but she actually lived in California um, which at the time did not have one of these laws. It since has one. Um, Governor Jerry Brown signed it into law. But at the time, California didn't have this law. Um, so she moved to Oregon, actually, to take advantage of their version of this law. Um, and so she was able to sort of go through that procedure, make the decision on her own terms. And, you know, her husband now has become an advocate for these kind of bills. He's traveled, you know, around the country advocating. He was involved with the passage of the California bill. He, he came out to testify about the Nevada bill. And, and he's a strong proponent saying, you know, this allowed my wife to make the decision um, you know, on her terms. And, and his sort of argument was, when you're in that situation, you're, you're going to die either way. So it's not suicide, you know, it's the illness that's going to kill you. You're just choosing, you know, are you going to die from, you know, whatever symptoms, whatever, you know, byproduct of the disease, or are you going to, you know, choose to take these drugs and sort of take, take matters into your own hands and, um, you know, give you back some control over your situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very serious topic, and you can check out Megan's story on that from this session and last session on thenevadaindependent.com. Um, Michelle, you had a big story that came out today that had to do with the Nevada system of higher education's attempts to raise graduation rates, which are horrible, bad, not good, uh, especially in community colleges where it's underneath 10% for the six-year graduation rate for um, I believe both full-time and part-time students. So what is uh, Chancellor Tom Riley and the system of higher education doing to try and address that that issue? Yeah, you're right, Riley. The graduation rates are really low. Um, they're lower than the national average, but just some of the numbers that you see are pretty stunning. Um, CSN has a 7% graduation rate. Apparently in 2001, it had a 1% graduation rate. Um, and the rate for students that are part-time, which is more than half of NG students are part-time. The rate at CSN is something like 4.5% uh, of part-time students will complete a degree program in six years. So, um, you know, it's just, there's so many barriers that go on, financial and, um, you know, academic, but also just students not knowing the right courses to take, maybe wandering around um, in a variety of majors. And I think one of the other huge problems that was identified was remedial education. And, you know, the idea is that you put these students in these high school level classes to try to get them up to speed and eventually put them into a college class. But sometimes students are needing to take three or four remedial classes before they even get to a college course. Think of how discouraging that can be, how you know, psychologically damaging that can be. Um, and it just puts so many roadblocks in front of the students. So what they're finding, they've, they've done this in a few of the institutions sort of on a limited basis, is something called co-requisite courses. 
And that's when you go ahead and put the student in the college level course. But you mandate that they go to tutoring and you get them in a group of other students and they work together and, and they have help from an advisor. And they found that actually students that are even on the low end of the aptitude spectrum. So, you know, they're getting a 13 or a 14 on their ACT and math, um, just really kind of low that even they can succeed in a college level course if they're getting enough help or if the pace of the course is slowed down, maybe broken into two semesters. So uh, what Chancellor Tom Riley is saying is, you know, we've done this on a, a limited basis at, you know, a couple of the schools, it's sort of optional, uh, but we want to just get rid of the whole remedial education scheme that we have and transition entirely into this co-requisite model where, where students are put immediately into college courses and they have a, a much better chance of getting to the finish line with that kind of support. They also just want to ramp up their efforts to put counselors in schools. So, you know, I mean, there's a one to 1,000 ratio in a lot of these schools of counselors to students and students are required to go use their services. I think when we were in high school, um, we were probably required to go, you know, make a visit to our counselor and kind of choose our classes. But it's not required in these uh, higher education institutions. Uh, Chancellor Tom Riley is saying we need to make that mandatory because you got students that are picking the wrong classes, getting down the wrong pathways, wasting time, wasting money, and then ultimately never completing. So, um, you know, the, the bottom line is that students that have a couple semesters of college are often in debt but have nothing to show for it and they're they're not employable because they don't have any certificate to show. Uh, so it's it's a big waste if these students are not completing their course of study on time. Um, so yeah, those are a couple of the strategies that NSHE is hoping to implement going forward to really just try to bump these numbers up and get more students these certificates and these degrees. Yeah, and it really is a huge undertaking, right? Because it's almost like I forget the exact percentage, but almost half of students who are going to, to Nevada and UNLV um, are taking remedial courses, which are, are not covered by uh, tuition programs like the Gwynn Scholarship or any of those. And the other thing that really struck me from your article is that uh, the chancellor said out and out that if you take some college, you're in a worse position and than you would have been had you not taken any college and just stuck with your high school degree because you're stuck with that financial burden, but you get no benefit from that. And there's quite clearly huge numbers, 95, 90% of students at CSN, other community colleges who were, that's happening to. So the, the, the one thing I wanted to ask was, um, it's been brought up a couple of times, but we've seen Nevada's high school graduation rate increase over time, almost to like, I think it's around 80% statewide. If Jackie Valley, if you're listening and I'm wrong, please let me know. But it's 83% right 83%. now. 83%. So how, how do those two things uh, fit together? Why are there so many students who are graduating high school while the, the number of uh, students who enter Nevada colleges have to take remedial classes remains pretty significantly high? You know, that's a really good question. And it came up twice, I think this week, from both of the Hansons. So Senator Hansen and Assemblywoman Hansen, they're married, both brought that up. Like, why is it that we have an 83%, you know, and growing rate of high school graduation? And yet you look at these SAT scores and they show that only 11% of Nevada's high school juniors are considered college ready. So they would be able in all subjects to jump straight into a college course without remediation. So that's just stunning. I mean, you have 70 plus percent of students that have a high school diploma that does, that does not mean that they're ready for college. So 
A couple things that we heard on that were that um, the Common Core standards, which sort of came into place, you know, a couple years back, have not taken their full effect. So, you know, the kindergartners that started with Common Core more rigorous standards, they are still, you know, in elementary school. And we have not seen the fruit of an effort to really increase the rigor in Nevada's education. There's also some issues with the testing and, and the testing requirements changing over the past couple of years. And that sort of plays into the rising graduation rate. But the bottom line for the Nevada system of higher education is they want to work with these school districts, especially the Clark County School District, and really try to get the professors to talk with the high school teachers and say, this is what your student's going to be learning on the first day of math here at CSN or UNLV. And so they should be here, you know, at the end of their high school math career. So hopefully a better cooperation between those two entities will better help students transition from high school to college. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember in, a, in another life, I was a, a summer guidance counselor at the University of Nevada, Reno, my uh, alma mater, which I'm very proud of. And I remember at the end of the summer orientation process, we would get the kids signed up for their classes. And probably like between half to three quarters of the kids I had in these orientation groups had remedial classes. And it was like, it's just a death sentence because you know, they're probably not going to finish college, but they're going to be stuck with thousands and thousands of dollars of debt. So um, we'll, we'll see what's going on uh, with that. And hopefully they can see some success and raise that graduation rate. Um, hopefully it's not too one-sided, but I don't think there's an anti-graduation group. Uh, <laughs> I think everyone wants better graduation rates. Yeah. Safe Maybe there's be. a dispute about how to get there. But. Yeah. Um, one thing that I covered this week that was uh, interesting and got a lot of attention was, uh, yet again, a bill to get Nevada into the national popular vote. If you guys remember from last session, this came up from Assemblyman Nelson Araujo. Basically, what this would do is put Nevada into this compact of states to um, pledge all of their electoral votes to the person who wins the national popular vote. So if Nevada voted for a Republican presidential candidate, but the Democrat got the national popular vote, they would give all their electoral votes to the Democratic person. It's like a workaround around the Electoral College. It's an effort that's been going on since 2004. It was sort of co-founded and co-launched bipartisanly. I think Newt Gingrich and Howard Dean were like two of the people in favor at the beginning. But it's obviously taken on more of a, um, I guess, pressing desire among a lot of Democrats, uh, given that Donald Trump won in 2016 while losing the the popular vote. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with it. Um, This go around, there's a lot of impassioned testimony, primarily from like progressive groups or democratic leading groups like the ACLU of Nevada, the Nevada State Education Association, Indivisible Reno, those folks. And then on the opposing side, there was the Nevada Republican Party and just like a bunch of people who thought this is going to really screw over Nevada. We're never going to get any presidential candidates to come here, and it's going to kind of kill our status as an important swing state. So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. The bill last session never made it out of committee. There was a similar attempt in 2009 to get a get Nevada into the same compact. It passed out of the Assembly but died in the Senate. So we'll, we'll see what happens with that. Obviously, it's got a lot of people thinking about it. The other thing to note is that this would not take effect immediately. There has to be 270 electoral votes between all of the states that enter into the compact before it takes effect. So don't worry about 2020 because we're probably not going to get there in time. But Colorado or the Colorado governor just announced he's going to sign the bill there. So there are about 88 electoral votes away or so. California, Hawaii, a bunch of big states have already signed on. Um, so it's possible. Could be a thing. Um, and we'll, we'll see what happens with that as it makes its way through the legislative process. 
I think uh, you had the hearing on in the background, so I listened to some of it. But I think one of the interesting things that kept coming out of that was some people really identify with how is Nevada going to vote? What way is Nevada going to go? As opposed to maybe identifying, you know, with the rest of the country. So it seemed like there was a sort of split, like between I feel like a Nevadan or I feel like an American. Yeah, it's kind of hard because all three of us are from California. So um, (laughs) full disclosure, (laughs) all four of us, all four of us. Oh, yeah. Our podcast producer. Um, (laughs) But yeah, like, you know, if you live in California, you effectively don't matter for the presidential election because it's going to go blue every year. So if you care about local races, you can vote. But otherwise, it just feels like a wasted vote. Whereas here, we feel like our vote actually matters and we have more of a way to think you can look up charts as to how important your vote is or how close could come to deciding the presidential race. So I think there's a lot of pride in that. and A lot of people like that. That would go away under this kind of system. But I think for a lot of Democrats, they just feel that um, an, an inherent unfairness from the Electoral College system and seeing that happen multiple times. I think there's been five presidents in total who lost the, the popular vote and were picked through the Electoral College or in the case of John Quincy Adams through the House of Representatives. So maybe this will be a fix in the, the 2020s and we'll finally get this debate laid to rest. Michelle, you also had a uh, another really interesting hearing you covered on Wednesday morning, right? Yes. It's been a long <laughs> week. <laughs> um, it was only yesterday. Only yesterday. So if I, I think you had this on the background team, so I'm trying to remember details, but this was a, a proposal brought by Republican Senator Ben Kiefer, and it would essentially take away a lot of the discretion that judges have when it comes to um, putting sentences on people who use a firearm in the commission of a crime. So who's bringing this bill, and can you tell us a little bit about what the, the pushback was from Democrats and other folks? Yeah, so uh, Republican Senator Ben Kiefer has this bill that would revert Nevada back to an old sentencing structure that we had pre-2007. So, you know, from 1995 to 2007, there, there's this thing called a weapons enhancement. So you could be charged with murder, but you could also get a weapons enhancement. And that's kind of the, at the discretion of the prosecutor. Um, so you got, uh, you know, charged for the straight murder, but you also got charged for the gun you used. An extra sentence. Uh, back in the day, it used to be that you would get a weapons enhancement that was exactly the length of the underlying charge of the sentence of the underlying charge. And that would just be tacked onto the top of your sentence. Uh, in 2007, in response to prison overcrowding concerns, they uh, gave discretion to the judge to say, you decide based on the circumstances of the case and the individual involved does this person deserve one year or does this person deserve up to 20 years? And the sentence could not be more than the underlying sentence. So if you have a 25-year sentence, the weapons enhancement can be no more than, well, in this case, it can be no more than 20. Ben Kiefer is attempting to bring that old sentencing structure back. And of note, Democrats control the legislature. They were fully aware this bill was coming up and, and, and allowed it to get a hearing. So obviously it's it's got some support among Democrats. But it got a lot of backlash. Uh, well, let's talk about proponents. Um, proponents include the police and the prosecutors who say we've got rising violent crime and uh, weapons are, are being used in the commission of these crimes frequently. Senator Kikever said this proposal came largely out of the discussion about gun background checks and concern about gun safety. So, you know, if we have a gun problem, should we not be punishing people that are using guns to a higher extent? 
and and Chuck Calloway, he's a lobbyist for the Las Vegas Police Department, said, you know, I can think of, you know, I think we need to put people in prison when they're the worst of the worst. And I can think of nobody who's worse than the worst than people who are using guns and, and causing problems in the community. But you got people on the other side that say, you know, why do you need to basically sentence someone double the time for a single crime? You know, people that say, why would you take the discretion away from the judge? This is exactly what we're trying to avoid. Um, you know, Nevada has just undergone this top-down review of its criminal justice system with the goal of trying to curb the growing population of our prison. And the d- director of the Department of Corrections has said, I don't want you guys to go planning and building another prison for me because I think that we can get this population down by doing certain reforms. So, but here you got someone that now you've got someone that was sentenced to 20 years, it's automatically going to be doubled to 40 years. So you've got to pay for someone to be in prison for an additional 20 years just because they used a gun in a murder. And, and one of the questions I think that comes up is when is a murder not using a deadly weapon? I mean, I, I can hardly think of a situation where it doesn't use a deadly weapon. So theoretically, you could see that a ton of these sentences would be doubled. Uh, So it got a lot of pushback from the ACLU and from public defenders who just think that this is going to make Nevada, you know, one of the most draconian states in terms of of weapons enhancements. And in general, it's just going to go against sort of a trend we've been seeing uh, where mandatory minimum sentences are, are out the door and there's more discretion and there's just less of a, a tough on crime mentality. Yeah, it was interesting. I, again, was listening to part of the hearing and I think one of the public defenders said like, you know, we'd love for it to happen, but people who do these crimes aren't listening to the legislative hearings <laughs> and they don't know that their penalties are going to be increased. And it's not like, oh, shoot, I'm not going to do this robbery because I now get my sentence doubled. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, even Senator Keith Kerkhofer said he doesn't agree with the deterrence argument. So he says, you know, I, I concede that raising the weapons enhancement is not necessarily going to prevent the crime in the front end, but he believes in the value of punishment and that as a goal of sentencing. So you really need to throw the book at this person when they have used a gun in in the commission of a crime. So that was kind of his argument is philosophical that, you know, um, maybe it will increase the prison population, but we need to look at this as a policy question. And does this person, because of their use of a weapon, deserve to have their sentence doubled. Mm-hmm. And this hearing also raised another question that comes up every legislative session. Um, what we saw uh, during the hearing was that a member of the Clark County District Attorney's Office came and testified in favor of it. Two of the members of this committee, the Senate Judiciary Committee, are employees of the Clark County District Attorney's Office. That's Senator Nicole Canizaro and Senator Melanie Scheibel. So can you tell us how those two senators reacted to this bill? And I think you talked to Senator Canizaro, and what, what did she say about it? Senator Canizaro said that her interest in the bill was basically that it would bring some consistency to sentencing. And this is something that she's had discussions with in the interim with other you know, leaders in the community is, is that sometimes you get a judge who is going to give you a 20-year weapons enhancement on a sentence. And sometimes you're going to get someone that's just going to give you, you the one year. And that's just the luck of the draw and which judge you got that particular case. So her interest in it is bringing more consistency and thereby more fairness to the process. But of course, you know, it it does raise an interesting interesting question because, you know, her boss is obviously sending his people to testify in favor of the bill. Um, Also on that committee, we have 
Melanie Scheibel, who is also a employee of the Clark County District Attorney's Office. They did have two different takes on on the bill during this hearing. Chair Candizaro seemed more favorable towards the bill, and uh, Senator Scheibel seemed more skeptical of the bill and its goals. So they definitely didn't fall in the same mold, even though they are both employees of Clark County's top prosecutor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to keep an eye on and just how that fits in with the whole push that Democrats have for criminal justice reform, as you were saying. Um, Megan, you have not written the story yet, but we can talk about it. Um, you just got done listening to a hearing that would move all Nevada elections to even-numbered years. Right now, there's a handful of jurisdictions that include Las Vegas, Henderson, Boulder City, a bunch of rural communities that do their elections in, in uh, odd-numbered years. Like, we have a bunch coming up uh, just in a couple of months for Las Vegas City Council that's drawn a lot of attention. So who's bringing this bill, and, and, and what is their, their purpose to make sure that all the elections happen kind of at the same time? Right. So this bill is coming from um, Secretary of State Barbara Sagafsky. Um, it's come up before. It's This is not the first time, you know, the legislature is considering this. But it's really interesting. So uh, Deputy Secretary of State for Elections Wayne Thorley was presenting the bill today, Thursday, is when we're recording this. And his sort of argument in favor of the bill was, one, this is going to save a lot of money. He cited a lot of facts and figures showing, you know, this is the cost of running elections in Reno and Sparks, which currently have elections in even-numbered years with the rest of the federal, state, and county elections. Um, And then he compared those numbers to the figures for Las Vegas, Henderson, North Las Vegas. And he even noted that if you look at Reno and North Las Vegas, they're pretty comparable in size. You can't say it's just like a population argument. It's more expensive in bigger cities. Um, But his argument was it's just so much cheaper to run an election in an even-numbered year. You know, you already have this infrastructure being set up, so it's not that difficult to just tack this on. And then the other argument in favor of the bill is that you're going to significantly increase turnout. Um, There's a lot of talk during the hearing about Mesquite, which apparently already had pretty decent turnout for municipal elections on odd numbered years. Um, And so, you know, they already had pretty decent turnout, but they just moved a couple of years ago over to the even numbered year. And they even saw just like a significant boost to their turnout numbers. One of the, you know, things that people talk about with municipal elections is that turnout can be really, really low, can be in, in, you know, the, the teens, even like that low a voter turnout. Um, it can be even worse too because elections can be decided in the primary. So sometimes you have these municipal elections when you know people are like, oh, well, maybe I'll just show up to the general. I don't need to go to the primary. But then you know if someone wins in the primary, you actually can just nobody has a chance to weigh in in the general election. So that was one of the other um, concerns with the system as is. On the opposing side, um, a lot of the cities right now that have. Uh, elections in odd numbered years they like the system the way it is you know they they say if we wanted to change it we would you know we would <laughs> we would change it you know we, we we can do that now you know the the city of henderson talked about you know um this is something that our citizens haven't asked for you know we, we kind of like it the way it is and a, another argument that the cities have made is is that you know really looking at these you know even numbered year elections you just have so many different things on the ballot right you might have presidential race or a senate race and house races and so by the time you get to the bottom of the ballot to your municipal election whether it's mayor or city council or you know a city ballot measure you know there's just so much fatigue that you you don't get all the way down to the bottom of the ballot Uh, But then the pushback from the other side is, well, you know, turnout's already so low. You know, the folks that are probably turning out to the odd number of your elections are probably your really diligent voters who are getting to the bottom of the ballot anyways, you know. So, 
you know, the, the worst you can do is sort of capture those vo- voters plus, you know, whoever does make it to the bottom of the ballot in an even numbered year. And, and, you know, there actually wasn't a lot of pushback to the argument that this will increase turnout or the financial benefit. But a lot of the concern was from cities saying, you know, hey, this is this is our decision. Um, you know, even though le- the legislature has the authority to tell cities to do this, um, they just sort of say, like, on principle, this should be our decision. Yeah. And you were saying, that, like, the city of Henderson opposed this, a couple other testified neutral. But what I found was interesting was that the city of Boulder City opposed it, but for sort of different reasons. Why, why did they do that? Right. So there was actually a law that was already passed that allows cities to, to make this change on their own voluntarily. Um, and so Boulder City has actually already begun that process um, of, of starting to change things over. Their their representative um, read a statement from the Boulder City um, or, uh, yeah, clerk um, expressing concerns that, you know, like they've already printed their sample ballots for 2019. And um, so the way they, they're dealing with it, which is the way that was set out under the previous law, um, they were saying is that you would actually reduce the sentences. So because you're trying to shift things over from being, you know, this um, elections are in, you know, June of an odd numbered year to now November of an even numbered year, you know, you're basically shifting it a year and a half. So either you have to reduce uh, terms by a year and a half, or you have to extend terms by a year and a half. Um, And so Boulder City, under this uh, law the legislature created, is reducing their terms by a year and a half. So they have, um, you know, things on the ballot that already have these sort of limited terms. So they were kind of confused about, well, how now does this apply to us? Because under this legislation, um, essentially terms, four-year terms would be extended to five and a half years. Um, Six-year municipal judge terms would be extended to seven and a half years. So their concern was, hey, like we're already, we're already doing this. If, you know, if this passes and this applies to us, this is sort of going to mess up everything that's already in motion. And so, you know, it remains to be seen. I am, I imagine that will be worked out somehow. It sounds like they were going to work with the secretary of state's office on that to somehow resolve that issue. Um, but yeah, so there's a sort of a logistical technical question of, you know, we're, we're already trying to do this. We, we agree with this goal, just sort of don't mess up the process we already have in place. Yeah. One, one other thing that this would quote unquote fix is this issue where campaign finance deadlines are now quarterly um, after this last election cycle. But oops, we uh, put the primary date for municipal elections prior to the first uh, reporting deadline. So we're going to have an election and not know any campaign finance stuff until two weeks later. So um, this will fix that problem. And this is of particular note in the Las Vegas City Council race that's been getting some headlines. Right, where former Congressman Ruben Kewin um, may be using his $300,000 he had in his congressional account, which is probably not legal under Nevada law, but we'll find out after the election um, what he's what he's doing. So Ruben, if you're listening, tell us what you're doing. Let's uh, just wrap things up really briefly with uh, Riley's Energy Corner. Joey, if you can have like electrical <laughs> bolts or like lightning sounds play during this part, that'd be cool. Envy Energy CEO Doug Cannon gave his first presentation to state lawmakers. It was just largely an overview um, to the Assembly Committee on Growth and Infrastructure. But he did reiterate that the utilities fully committed to a 50% renewable portfolio standard, which was a big goal in the 2017 legislature. The utility opposed it then. There's been a lot of questions in the interim if they'll support it especially given that there was a ballot question to raise the, the RPS to that level. So it's interesting that he, he continued to say that. He also talked a little bit about the 704B process where large businesses uh, can file a- applications to leave NV Energy's service territory and get energy from another provider. He said that's a concern, and they never want to see a business exit, and then their customers get hit with uh, rate returns. I did a brief interview with him um, after the 
committee hearing and he kind of played his cards close to the chest, but they're obviously going to be a power player uh, this <laughs> legislative session. Um, so you did there. Oh, no. Yeah. And uh, in other energy news, the Cosmopolitan uh, filed an exit to leave the um, Envy Energy's electric service this week. They're the third business to do so this year. There were 10 that did so um, in 2018, which was last year. And we'll see what happens. Uh, some, uh, Senator Chris Brooks has a bill out to amend the, the, the 704B exit process. So I'm going to be watching that with a lot of interest just to see how that would affect the many, many businesses that have filed to leave. Um, uh, Riley, before we leave the energy corner, the RPS, the, energy corner. <laughs> <laughs> the RPS, uh, what was interesting in your story is that Envy Energy does want to change the way they calculate the RPS. And it seems to me that's a big statement that could have big implications because, you know, people think that the RPS means, oh, 50% of our energy is coming from a solar plant. Um, but it's not that simple, and, and a lot of kind of finagling can be done with credits and what the Hoover Dam does, and right? I mean, this could this could be significant. Yeah, so you're giving me a lot of credit by using the word interesting. But <laughs> one of the things that uh, Doug Cannon, the new CEO, said was that they want to make sure that the RPS accurately reflects renewable energy. Like you said, it is a it's a formula. It's sort of like, if you remember the cap-and-trade concept, it's like that, but with energy credits. So... There's a lot of finagling you can do with that formula. We are set to get rid of all of our credits for energy efficiency in 2025. That's something that he brought up. Like you said, the energy created by the Hoover Dam um, doesn't count towards the RPS, so that's another thing they might bring up. We used to have multiplier credits where for all the solar production you had, you got 2.4 uh, credits um, underneath the RPS. And you can also roll over credits. So if you do really well one year, you can roll it over to the next year. Um, you get credits for in-station use, even if it doesn't power your light bulbs at home, if it's just powering the power plant itself, that counts for the RPS. So it's kind of this like weird, sort of archaic way, but it's just, people have just grabbed onto it because, you know, 50% by 2030s, 50 by 30 is really easy to, to grasp and understand. Cool. Cool. All right. <laughs> Thanks, man. Uh, we can finally leave the energy corner. Um, and that is all the time we have for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. We want to know what you think. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise for a, yet again a Ralston-free episode, email us at ideas at the Remember to check out our site if you haven't already, the NevadaIndependent.com. Please search for us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, all your favorite podcast uh, platforms. And remember to rate and subscribe us as well. I want to thank Megan and Michelle for being here tonight. And a special thanks to our producer, Joey Lovato, who makes us all sound podcast smooth. I'm Riley Snyder. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters. And we'll talk to you next week.